If you have a Bible, I'm going to encourage you to join me in Deuteronomy chapter number 3. Deuteronomy chapter number 3. Uh, today's going to be an interesting day. If it's your first time with us, or maybe the first time in a long time, we've started a journey through the fifth book of the Bible. It's called Deuteronomy. It's a series of three speeches given by Moses before he dies and before Israel goes into the promised land. And where we're at right now in chapter 3, Moses is rehearsing the journey that the people have taken. For Moses, it's his second trip to the edge of the promised land. He led a, he led a group out of Egypt um, across the Red Sea, through the wilderness. They got right to the edge of the promised land. But when they heard about the walled cities and the giants, they're like, we're not going. He turned them around and they wandered the wilderness for almost 40 years. And now Moses is bringing their children and grandchildren, the second generation, from the wilderness back to the edge of the promised land. And this is what he's detailing in chapters 2 and three. And if you were with us as we got through chapter two, we saw that Israel came to four different people groups Edom, who are the descendants of Esau, Ammon and Moab, who are the descendants of Lot. And then we got to this fourth at the end of chapter two, the land of Heshbon, that is known by its king, whose name is Sihon. Now, most people, when we read Deuteronomy, do not get excited about these details, <laughs> they're boring historical facts with absolutely no relevance to our lives today, we assume. I think, though, that by the end of the message today, you're going to be very surprised with just how relevant these boring details Moses writes are. And to remind all of us, when Israel arrived at the borders of these first three people groups, Edom, Ammon, and Moab, in each case, they were instructed, don't provoke them, don't harass them, don't go to war with them. But if we read carefully, Moses chronicles something that's critical to the story. He writes that in these first three cities of Edom, Moab, and Ammon, the giant groups that are known as either Nephilim, Rephaim, Anakites, or sons of Anak, that they have been driven out of those three lands. And that's critical to the story that there's no giants in Edom, Moab, and Ammon. But everything changes when they get to that fourth people group called Heshbon, and known by this king Sihon, and Yahweh doesn't tell them, don't provoke them. He actually says, go to war with them. I've already delivered them in your hand, into your hands. And if you were here with us when we talked about this, Moses, you remember Moses sent messengers of peace saying, hey, we'll just come through peacefully. And this king said, no way, they're going to war. And Israel wiped out this king, Sihon, and all the people of Heshbon. And the Bible says that they left no survivors. We're going to address that today. It's like the elephant in the room. Like, why would God wipe out entire civilizations? Men, women, and children. But before we do that, we've got to go through this last people group before they get to the promised land. And that's what we get detailed in Deuteronomy chapter number three. It's a people called Bashan is the land. And it's run by a king whose name is Og, O-G. 
guess he's the original OG, right? Deuteronomy chapter number 3, verse number 1 is what we read. Moses again chronicling, he says, Next we turned and went up along the road toward Bashan, and Og, king of Bashan, with his whole army, marched out to meet us in battle at Edre. Yahweh said to me, Do not be afraid of him, for I have delivered him into your hands along with his whole army and his land. Do to him what you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon. So Yahweh says the same thing to Moses about Og, king of Bashan, as he did about Sihon, king of Heshbon. I've delivered him into your hands. Go conquer. Look at verse 3. So Yahweh our God also gave into our hands Og, king of Bashan, and all his army. We struck them down, leaving no survivors. At that time, we took all his cities. There was not one of the 60 cities that we did not take from them. The whole region of Argob, Og's kingdom in Bashan, verse 5. All these cities were fortified with high walls and with gates and bars, and there were also a great many unwalled villages. We completely destroyed them, as we had done with Sihon, king of Heshbon, destroying every city, men, women, and children. But all the livestock and the plunder from their cities we carried off. For ourselves. So they came upon 60 different cities, some with high walls, some without. And they walked through each of those cities, conquered and killed all the men, all the women, all the children, no survivors. And man, you read that and you're like, ugh. Because the actions of Israel as they enter this as they enter the promised land and, and, and as they wipe out entire civilizations, that is a huge stumbling block for people when they think about a loving God. Like, I get it. Maybe you kill the men of war, but do you have to kill all the women and children? Aren't they just innocents? I mean, it makes Yahweh look like this bloodthirsty angry God, and all he wants to do is destroy everyone who doesn't worship him. And man, like in some ways, it's really hard to explain that. But is that an accurate portrayal? Like if we go back to those first three people groups that we talked about, Edom, Moab, and Ammon, they didn't worship Yahweh. In fact, Edom came out to war against Israel Moab called a sorcerer and said, come curse them. These were not friends of Yahweh. These were enemies of Yahweh. And yet Yahweh said, just pass by. Don't, don't go to war with them. Don't even provoke them. So, I mean, it, it, it can't be that Yahweh just said, I want everyone who doesn't worship me to die because these three people groups, he didn't tell them anything about going to war, but now we get to these Heshbon and Bashan, and he's like, wipe them out. Like, well, what's the difference? I'm going to take you to one more verse in Deuteronomy chapter 3. Look at verse number 11. It's actually a, a strange description of the king of Bashan, his name Og again. It says in verse 11, Og, king of Bashan, was the last of the Rephaites, or the last of the Rephaim. His bed was decorated with iron and there was more than nine and was more than nine cubits long and four cubits wide, and it is still in Rabbah of the Ammonites. Now I don't know about you, but when I read that, I, I just kind of think, this is ridiculous. 
There's a whole lot that happened in the history of civilization that is not found in our Bibles, and yet the Lord is going to take an entire verse to talk about the size of someone's bed. I mean, it is a king size. I mean, he's a king. He's a king size bed, right? What's the purpose in that? Well, it gives us these descriptions of the, of the bed that it's nine cubits long and four cubits wide and a cubit, in case if you don't know, it's a, it's a measurement that goes from the tip of a finger to the end of the elbow, and it's approximately 18 inches. It's how they used to measure things. And that means in our day, this bed would be 13 and a half feet long by six foot wide, literally large enough for a small car. And it's where a man slept. What do you think he might be trying to tell us about Og? He was a giant. And we see that he was the last of the Rephaim. And who are the Rephaim? Well, the Rephaim were a race of giants. In fact, as we looked already at Deuteronomy chapter 2, this is one of the races Moses talked about that had already been driven out of Edom, Moab, and Ammon. And so are you picking up on this theme that there were no giants in Edom, Moab, and Ammon, and, and Yahweh says, leave them alone, and then there's giants in Heshbon and Bashan, and so he says, kill them, leave no survivors. There's this theme running through of giants, and if we go back to that first generation of Israelites who walked right up to the promised land, why didn't they go into the promised land? Because there were giants. So it seems as if this second generation comes and as they approach people groups where there are giants living, Yahweh says, wipe them out completely. Which begs the question, why is Yahweh determined to destroy the race of giants? Now, I have to be honest with you. And pause for a moment, because I know that there are some of you, maybe it's your first time here, and you're thinking, like, what's up with this dude? <laughs> like, I came to hear about Jesus, and he is, like, fixated on giants. My heart is heavy, and all he's doing is telling us the measurements of, a, of someone's bed. Like, how is this supposed to help me in my struggles of life? Well, let, let's be honest for a moment, right? Every one of us either has is or will face incredible odds, giants, obstacles that we feel are completely unbeatable. And every time we come up against some kind of obstacle, any kind of a giant in our life, we have one of three options. We could do as, as that first generation of Israel did, we get a sight of them and then we run scared of them. Or we could do what many people love to do, we just ignore the giant in our life. And yet we're scared because at any day that giant can rise up and take us out. Or we can face the giants. I'm sure that there are some of you here who have been wounded very deeply by others. And you have convinced yourself that the best plan for that is to ignore the pain, the hurt, and rejection. It's the best plan for my life. Just don't even think about it. 
I'm just going to keep living. I'm going to act as if everything's all right. But what happens without you sometimes even knowing it is when you ignore those giants of pain, hurt, and rejection, you are building walls that, allow, that do not allow people to now make new relationships with you because you have been rejected at some point. About a year after our family moved from Indiana to Virginia, a a lady came up to me at the end of a service and she said, Pastor Brian, I need to tell you something. I didn't want to like you. And I was like, come on. And she said, I didn't want to like you. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, when our previous pastor left, I was so hurt. He's the one that brought me to Christ. I loved him and his family dearly. And when he left, I was so sad. I was so angry. I was so hurt. I was so disappointed. I said, I'm going to keep going to church because Jesus wants me to, but I'm not going to give my love to that next pastor. No one else is going to hurt me like that. She came up, this was about a year afterwards, and she said, the Lord just spoke to me today and told me I'm only hurting myself. And my family. And she said, we want to love you and your family. And that lady went on to be one of the dearest friends to our family. She loved us so much and went above and beyond to show. In fact, she regularly sends my wife messages and me messages to say, I'm praying for Plymouth Community Church. This young lady was was the one person that was in my mind when I stood in front of a congregation in Virginia and read my resignation letter telling them that the Lord was bringing me here. And I was thinking of her that the last time this happened, it crushed her. She met me up front after church, which I fully expected, with tears, which I fully expected, and said, which I did not expect at all, Pastor Brian, I am sad but I'm so happy that you're following the Lord. I know God's going to do big things for you. We hugged and embraced, and like I said, she has been a champion for our family, even though we left Virginia, she has been a champion for our family here at Plymouth Community Church. All because she said, I'll face down that giant of pain, hurt, and rejection. I will open myself up, being allowed to be hurt again, but at least opening myself up to love again. Others don't ignore their giants, though. They run from them. And most often, those giants we run from, they're associated with deep, deep, deep pain and great Grief and loss, often unjustly and often unexpected loss. And and that loss becomes, it becomes a giant that we look at and say, I can't go any further. The, The hurt is too deep. The walls are too high. The cost is too great. I'm not going forward. And then what happens is many in that situation, they blame God for their loss. Forgive me for that going so well with what you said. We blame God for our loss. Like when a loved one is taken by illness or accident. And God becomes, to God is seen as the source of someone's pain rather than the source of healing from pain. 
And because of that, we just stop and we turn away from God saying, I don't want anything to do with you anymore, but we have to. Hey, today, we just have to stop and remind our hearts, right? God made a perfect world. Perfection was his plan. Sin destroyed God's perfection. The curse of sin brought disease. Sin brought death. Sin divided God from man. And and something sin does so well is it distorts our view of God. And it leads us to see God as the reason for pain rather than a rescue from pain. And there are some who have suffered so monumentally and so so tragically in your life in this giant mountain of loss. If you turn this way, that mountain is moving and it's in front of you again. And if you turn this way, it's not long before that mountain shows up again and you just can't get away from it. You can't run from it. It's always in front of you. But I want to tell you, there's something better than ignoring those feelings and burying the emotions and just trying to do life with your head down. And that is the truth that we find in Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his promise. Romans 8, 28 does not promise that all things are good for those who love God. It doesn't say that you're going to have a good life. It doesn't say all things are going to be great. It is a promise that all things can be used for your good and for God's glory. It does not say, my life will be good. It will say that even the tragic, hard times, God can use those for good in your life, but ultimately for his glory. Like this truth was so on display last weekend at the youth lock-in. Hope Anderson gave her testimony. It's her testimony to share. I'm not going to share it. But she gave a testimony about layer upon layer of rejection from people who should have loved her, including the church. And her reaction to the way the church reacted to her was, I am done with the church. I'm going to go a different way. I don't want that rejection in front of me. And it was at a counseling appointment where she was challenged to say, what if instead of walking away from the church because they hurt you, you go back and help the church know how to love and comfort those? And she said, so I did. Not long after she gave her testimony to all of those who were gathered, a young teenage girl who I did not know and I don't think she knew either, walked up to her and began to open up to her about the stories of pain and hurt in her life and rejection. Eventually, Hope brought her over to me, and we, together, the two of us, got to sit there, and we opened up a Bible and got to tell her how Jesus brings hope into a broken world. And 45 minutes later, that was the young lady that we celebrated who gave her life to Christ. She gave her life to Christ, all glory to God, because someone said, I've been hurt and rejected and broken, but God can use this for good. But he doesn't use it for good when we just bury it. Now let's go back to that question that we asked a little bit earlier. 
Why is Yahweh determined to destroy the race of giants? We're going to go through a quick theme throughout the scripture about spiritual warfare. So stay with me. I'll go quickly because I have to just because of time. But I think if you pay attention and you understand what's, what's, what we're seeing as we are going to have our eyes open to understand what's happening in the world around us. So we have to begin. Why does Yahweh want to eliminate the race of giants? We need to find out where those giants came from. You're welcome to turn there with me, but I have the verses behind me in Genesis chapter number 6. In Genesis chapter number 6, the first four verses give us an understanding of the origin of giants. It says in verse number 1, When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, now that term's going to be really important, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then Yahweh said, my spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. Verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when or whenever the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old men of renown. Now, I don't know if you've ever read the Bible starting, you know, in Genesis, and you begin at the beginning of the year, and you get to this passage. I don't know how you felt. I've always got to it, read it, said, I have no idea what that's even talking about, but I just keep reading. Let's pause for just a moment. There was a time when the sons of God came to the daughters of men, and this physical union brought a race of giants called the Nephilim, and that's what the word Nephilim means. It just means giants, it's where it all began. How did, how did this begin? Who are these sons of God? Well, the, the Hebrew is called Ben Elohim. The sons of God is just Ben Elohim. You should recognize that word El or Elohim. That's God. So these are sons of God. And some theologians will teach that these sons of God were, well, they were descendants of, of a man named Seth who was the son of Adam. And so they were just good people, good, good righteous men. Other theologians will say that uh, these were important leaders, elders, kings maybe, because they were men of renown. The problem, with, the problem is that neither of these answers explain how giant human, giant people would be born to woman as a result of these sons of God who are humans being with women who are humans. So let's go, let's go just a little bit deeper into Scripture I don't think it would surprise you if I told you that the person referred to most in the Bible as the Son of God is Jesus. Does that surprise anyone? 42 times Jesus is called the Son of God. But did you know there are two other people called the Son of God? In Luke chapter 3, we're reading the genealogy of Jesus and we get to the name Adam and Adam is called the Son of God. In Exodus 4, as Yahweh is talking to Moses, he's speaking about the nation of Israel, and he says, yeah, Israel, my firstborn son. We'll come back to that in a moment. So Adam is the son of God. Israel is a son of God. But did you also know, as we read earlier, there are places where we see sons of God? Well, who are sons of God? We see it in Job. 
In Job chapter 1, verse number 6, and it's almost repeated in Job chapter 2, verse 1, so I didn't put it back up there. But here's what we read. That there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh, and Satan also came among them. We see the same thing in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. It's the same Hebrew words, ben Elohim. Actually, in the NIV, it actually uses the word angels. Why would it use the word angels? Well, because in Luke chapter 1, when Gabriel comes to this this, uh, priest called Zechariah, he says, I am Gabriel, as an angel, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God. And so the beings that stand in the presence of God are sons of God, Ben Elohim, they are angels. We see it at the end of Job, and if you know Job, at the end of Job, God is challenging some of Job's questions, and he asks Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? That's creation. Where were you a creation when the morning stars sang together and the sons of God, the Ben Elohim, and again in the NIV angels, when the sons of God shouted for joy. So we see very clearly that the sons of God and Job are angels. So now what does that mean if we go back to Genesis 6 and understand what's happening here? That the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and afterward when the sons of God, the Ben Elohim, the angels went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. We know Yahweh did not create angels His sons of God, he did not create them to mate with humans. Which means these sons of God in Genesis 6 are fallen angels. Which means the race of giants were actually offspring of fallen sons of God or of fallen angels who had rebelled against Yahweh. Now think of the implications here. Let's go back to that first son of God that was mentioned, Adam, the son of God. Why is Adam called the son of God? Because God created him. Adam, the son of God, rebelled against his creator. When? When he was influenced by a fallen son of God. Satan, a fallen son of God. And Israel... Why is Israel called the son of God? Well, because Abraham and Sarah, they didn't have a child. And God put a child into the womb of a barren woman named Sarah. He created that nation of Israel out of nothing. So Israel is his son. And when does Israel rebel against their creator? When they get to the edge of the promised land and they look and they see Nephilim who are offspring of the fallen sons of God. So for the second time, we have a son of God created by God who rebels against his creator because of the influence of these fallen sons of God. No wonder Yahweh was so upset with that first generation when they said, we can't go in. He created everything that they were saying we can't defeat. And it also helps us now go into Deuteronomy and realize that when Israel was walking through these people groups, bringing complete and total destruction, it was not because Yahweh was bloodthirsty. It was not because he was out for revenge, but Yahweh was destroying 
any remnant of the fallen sons of God or of the fallen angels destroying any remnant of them on earth to prevent further rebellion. This was not some, uh, he's just going to kill everybody. No, he had to get rid of the women and he had to get rid of the children because they were carrying spiritual DNA that needed to be wiped out. It's, it's why God said, it's why Yahweh said, when you go into the promised land, I will go before you. I will fight for you because this was not just a simple earthly battle between two armies. This was a heavenly, a spiritual battle because the fallen sons of God were fighting those who were called sons of God. But let's jump ahead. When Israel gets to the promised land, do they defeat all the giant clan? No, they don't. Because we love the story of a little young boy named David. David who walks out as a young boy and he sees a giant named Goliath. And what we don't understand is that the battle of David and Goliath represented David who would be the lineage of of Jesus, the righteous son of God. David, the line of the Messiah, was going out to battle against Goliath, the line of the fallen sons of God. And how does David approach Goliath? Well, we know a slingshot, right? But what does David say? You, giant, come to me with sword and spear, I come to you in the name of Yahweh. Why does he say that? Because it's a spiritual battle. It is a son of God that is going to be raised up from the lineage of David, fighting a giant who was of the lineage of a fallen son of God. And how does David defeat Goliath? Well, it takes us back to Genesis 3.15. He crushes his head. That was a promise given to the Messiah of what he would do to his enemies. He would crush his head. And then David picks up Goliath's own sword and he lops off Goliath's head and he picks up his head, showing us how Jesus is going to one day defeat the enemy of death. He's going to use death, his own, to defeat death. His own sword. Later in David's life, he defeats the rest of the giants throughout the promised land. And it's no wonder that is under the reign of David, who finished the work of defeating the enemy and wanted to build a temple for the glory of God, that we see the kingdom of Israel reach its pinnacle under King David. But how long does it last? One generation. By the time David's son Solomon dies, his heart has turned from Yahweh to other Elohim, to other gods. And eventually all of Israel, the firstborn son of God, all of Israel turns from Yahweh in rebellion to other gods. The second defeat of the son of God at the hands of the fallen sons of God. What is Yahweh to do? Adam, the son of God, failed. Israel, the son of God, failed. Now he sends Jesus. 
Oh, but this is a different son of God. Because if you've ever read John 3.16, we know that Jesus is the only begotten. And what that means is that Jesus is actually the one and only a unique son. So different than any other son. He's not like the angels. He's not like Adam. He's not like Israel. He's not just the son of God. He is God. Woo! But this son of God, nobody knows. It's him. Until... His baptism. At his baptism, the heavens open, the spirit descends, and a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son. Oh, and what happens as soon as that announcement is made? The son of God is driven into the wilderness like Israel, the son of God, to be tempted face, by, face to face by Satan, just like Adam, the son of God, but Adam failed and Israel failed. Will Jesus fail this temptation in the wilderness? No, he defeats Satan three times. This temptation comes and Jesus defeats him with the word of God. And so does Satan walk away wounded? No. At the Last Supper, we read Satan enters Judas. Judas betrays Jesus. Jesus is arrested. Jesus is crucified. Jesus is killed. Jesus, the Son of God, is the third Son of God that has failed to stand up to the fallen sons of God. And now that he has died, he's, he's under death, and death is an enemy, is an undefeated giant that no one has ever conquered. And so this scene is so familiar to Satan and to those fallen sons of God. We've defeated Adam, the son of God. We've defeated Israel, the son of God. And ha ha, we've defeated Jesus, the son of God. And they enjoyed that party for two days. Because on the third day, on the third day, that son of God said, oh, no, I never rebelled against my God. I never rebelled against Yahweh. I am Yahweh. I am God. And because I live perfectly pure, I am vindicated of my death. My death was not for me. My death was for others. I am alive. And we celebrate on Resurrection Sunday that the son of God comes back. And he faces down those fallen sons of God as Jesus, the perfect and the holy son of God, stands victorious over Satan and those rebellious fallen sons of God. And we know because it's Paul that says it was at the cross in Colossians 2 that, that Jesus took his enemies and he triumphed over them and he put them to open shame. And it's in Ephesians where Paul says, and he has ascended back to heaven where he is enthroned over all powers and rulers and authority in spiritual places. So that's it. Ah, the son of God, Jesus. He won it, right? Now we have no more fallen sons of God to deal with. No, that's not accurate. Satan has been defeated, but not eliminated. He's been bound from deceiving the nations, but he still roams as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The day will come when Jesus returns, our victorious king. He'll come back and, and he'll eliminate Satan and all those fallen angels and give them their final justice. That day will come, but it's on his second return. And right now we're in the already but not yet kingdom. 
So what does that mean? Is Jesus just up in heaven and allowing Satan to run free? Oh, no. He's got a really cool plan. We read it in John chapter 1. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become, what, what, what? To become, to become what? If we believe in him, we get to become what? Sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name who were born. And they weren't born of, of blood. They weren't born of the will of the flesh. They weren't born because man wanted it. They were born of God. Man, do you know what that means? That means his plan is that I've got the son of God in heaven ruling and reigning over everything. But I have my sons and daughters of God walking on this earth and they are battling the fallen sons of God every day. And you know what I'm going to do for them? He says in Matthew 28, we call it the Great Commission. He says, hi, I have all authority I'm going to give it to you. You know what else I'm going to give you? I'm going to give you my presence. I am with you until the end of the age. Before I show you the next slide, for those of you that have been here for these couple of weeks as we've gone through Deuteronomy, do you remember the command that Yahweh gave to Israel when they got to the, as they were approaching the promised land, he would say, Go and take possession. Remember him saying that? Go take possession. Jesus has a command to his sons of God. Jesus gives his authority and his presence to the sons of God who believe in his name. And he says, go and make disciples. He he didn't say go and attend church once a week. Sorry. That's no, rough. He didn't say go and just enjoy your life and occasionally drop some money in the offering plate so you feel good about it. But just go live however you want to. I'm really sorry about that one too. That'd be so much easier. No, he gives us, as his son, as his daughter, he gives us instructions. And those instructions are, go, make disciples. I've already given you the victory. I've already, I've already knocked down the enemies. I've, I've brought down the walls. I've defeated the giants. Stop making excuses for why you aren't going to do what I'm commanding you to do. Go and make disciples. I know, like, some people are scared to move forward because of a past hurt. And it's this giant of fear that stands, and Jesus comes alongside and compassionately puts his arm around you and says, Hey, fear not, for I am with you. I will uphold you with my mighty right hand. The right hand that has defeated every enemy, including your giant of fear. And some of you, I know you're in here and you're thinking of giving up and just turning around. And those walls of guilt, those walls of shame are everywhere you turn. And Jesus says, 
let me, let me take this wall and I want to remind you I've torn it down. And let me tell you, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You don't let shame defeat you. You are not condemned. And there are some who are trying to get into the kingdom of God, scaling the walls, and you keep falling because your good works are just never enough. And he says, listen, I've defeated death. I am life. You don't get into the kingdom on your own scaling a wall. I am the door. Come to me. I will give you eternal life. I'm the way and the truth and the life. And some of you are scared to actually talk with someone and and begin a discipling relationship. Like, I don't want to talk to anybody. But you have been given authority and instruction by your king Go make disciples. The victory is yours. The enemy has been defeated. I've delivered them into your hand. You just have to go. I have no doubt there are people today in this room hiding. You're frightened. You're running away. You're cowering in a corner because of, you're afraid of what has happened to you. But let me remind you, if you're a believer, who you are in Christ, you are a child of the king because he created you, not just as a human. He gave you life. He is your creator. You are his child. And he knows He knows that you're facing fallen sons of God. That's why he gives you armor. As Paul said, put on the armor of God because you don't wrestle against flesh and blood. You're wrestling against really true spiritual forces of darkness in high places. Put on the armor because it's a battle out there. It's a real battle, but I have given you the victory. Go and make disciples. So if you're a believer facing the fallen sons of God. Yes, wear the armor. Please pray. Know the word. Get into the word. And don't go to battle alone. Surround yourself with other warriors. If you're here today and you're not a believer and you just think, dude, this guy is whacked up with the whole giants and angels and everything. Like, I'm, I'm sorry that this is your first time if this is your first time and, and that's what your thoughts are. But it's really cool that you're here today. Because you're actually invited into the kingdom of Jesus. It's a kingdom where you find the forgiveness of sins, where you find a right standing with God, where you receive eternal life, and it's, you have an amazing privilege to become a son or a daughter of God yourself. And it's really, it's really not hard. You believe in who Jesus is that we sang about. He's the son of God. You believe in what Jesus has done, that he gave his life after living a perfect life. He gave his life on that cross and he died for our sins. And then you just say, I believe it and I want to follow that king. He's my king. I'll be in his kingdom. So you see that we're in a battle. It's a real battle. But the victory's yours. What are you going to do about it? Would you pray with me? With your heads bowed and eyes closed, can I just ask you,
I would really, really love for your attention to be just right here. What is the giant standing in front of your life? What is it that has kept you from moving forward this past year? Or maybe this past five years? Or maybe it's been a lot longer than that. What is the giant standing in front of you? Name it. You're scared of it, aren't you? Afraid of truly stepping into that and facing it. It's a wall that seems impossible to climb. May I remind you that our king has defeated every giant and he's torn down every wall. And it is the deceit of Satan that says there's giants there and there's walls in front of you. That is a deception of Satan. Jesus has said go. We can go if he said go. We can go. And we can make disciples. That's what we need to do as a church. So what is one step you can take today? One step that you can take this week to say, I'm not going to run from and I'm not going to ignore the giant anymore. It's time to face the giant. 